0: Jesus said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. What had happened was he was sitting down to eat with a bunch of sinners. And these holier-than-thou Pharisees, you know, the religious leaders of the day, were criticizing him for hanging out with bad people. And Jesus' response to them was, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. It's actually a, a profound mysterious, and confusing statement, if you think about it. I I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Well, we understand the mercy part. Of course God wants mercy. But sacrifice? Oh, Steve, he doesn't want sacrifice. Yeah, that's what he said. I desire mercy not sacrifice, but that's why it's confusing. Where do you think sacrifice came from? God. God's the one that told ancient Israel to have sacrifice. So when Jesus turns around, and by the way, he didn't say this for the first time. This is a quote of the prophets, Hosea chapter 6. He's quoting Hosea, the prophet, who says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So how is it that God, who insists on sacrifice, set up the entire Old Testament system around sacrifice, now turns around and says, "Eh, I don't want sacrifice. You see, it's, it's a complex thing. It's a mystery. It's a riddle. And he's telling these people they obviously have not yet solved it, and they need to. In our day and age, the way we have our faith, sacrifice doesn't mean much to us. But it was extremely important to ancient Israel. God told them to do it. In fact, more than likely, the very first sacrifice ever made was made by God himself. Remember what happened in the Garden of Eden? After sin came in, and Adam and Eve realized they were naked and were ashamed, God, they made clothes out of leaves. God made them skins. God killed the first animal. And the idea he did it to cover their shame, the symbolism of a sacrifice is pretty apparent. It's the way that God wanted to be worshipped. He wanted people to sacrifice. Now, you might think, well, that's kind of weird and cruel and barbaric. No, it's only because you don't understand what sacrifice is all about. And I think today, separated by thousands of years, a lot of people have missed the significance of the gospel because they don't know the background story case in point gave this lesson yesterday jewish guy comes up to me after services and he said i've heard before you know that jesus had died for people's sins i never understood how that could be or what that meant he says i understand now because he learned what the scripture said about sacrifices and it helped him understand the gospel of jesus Sacrifice is the way God wanted Israel to learn about sin, atonement, holiness, and fellowship with him. And it works. So here I am, back a bazillion years ago, a young Jewish man myself, and I pick up the Bible for the first time, the Old Testament, and I start to read it. And there's right away, within just, you know, several chapters, before I'm even done with the books of Moses, especially when I'm in Exodus and Leviticus... Here's what I know God is holy, and I'm not. God holds us accountable to our, for our sin, and I have sinned. God requires a sacrifice to atone for our sin. I'm in trouble because there is no sacrifice. Remember, I'm a young Jewish guy picking up the Bible for the first time. I realize I'm a sinner. God says, you can make this right with me. Go to the temple in Jerusalem and offer a sacrifice and all's good. So here I am up a spiritual creek without a paddle. If God's real, and I'm thinking he is, and sin is real and I do it, and God wants a sacrifice to atone for sin, wow, that just ruined my day. Because if there's a God, there's no way to get right with him. That's where I was while I'm reading through the Scripture. The lessons of sacrifice in Scripture, very profound. The only prescribed way to have peace with God in the Torah, in the Old Testament, is through sacrifice. Let me read to you Leviticus 17. In fact, why don't you open your Bibles. Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. If you didn't bring one, there's one in the pew in front of you. I want you to have it right in front of you. You can go home and study it better if you want when you get home. Leviticus 17, 11. Here's what it says. The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. God is telling the children of Israel, I'm giving you a sacrificial system to make atonement for yourselves. The life of the flesh is in the blood. You've got to spill it out on the altar to make atonement for yourselves. Very clear to understand. And I'm not misunderstanding it because the New Testament says the same thing. Listen, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. In fact, the law, the Torah, requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And listen, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So the book of Hebrews is saying, Steve, you understood the Torah right. That's exactly what it says. God gave ancient Israel a sacrificial system so that they might understand the only way to have your sins atoned for is through sacrifice, bloodshed. Pretty gruesome, Steve. Yeah, that it is. The temple where the sacrifices were made was the only place the Israelites could fulfill their spiritual obligations. And that's the way God wanted it. Just trying to help you understand the importance of sacrifice, the significance of sacrifice. Um, Jesus, after he was born, his parents took him to the temple to offer the prescribed sacrifices. From his, you know, first few days on the planet, maybe up to the day of forty or something, forty days old, until he died, he constantly went to the temple. The temple was extremely important, and that's where sacrifices were made today, Orthodox Jewish people still make sacrifices. I've shared this with you in the past, so for some of you, this won't be news, but for some of you, it is news. Now, I'm not telling you it's right that they do it. It's not right. What I'm trying to tell you is they understand the significance of sacrifice. The temple is gone, and in their mind, they realize they need a sacrifice. So what they'll do is they'll take a chicken at the day of a at the time of the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. I don't remember if it's that day or the day before or whatever. They'll take this chicken and wave it over their heads, if they're married, over their wife's head, if they've got children, over the entire family. So they wave this chicken over the family's head while they say this prayer. Listen, this is my exchange. This is my substitute. This is my expiation, my atonement. This chicken shall go to death and I shall proceed to a good, long life and peace. Next picture. Notice it's even done in public. If you live in a place with a very large Jewish community like New York, you can see this happening out on the streets. So what are they saying? They're saying, this chicken's going to die so I might live. It's my substitutionary atonement. It's my sacrifice. Now, if you say, hey, you're not supposed to have a sacrifice outside of the temple, they say, you're right, that's not a sacrifice. Well, if it looks like a chicken, (laughs) if it waves like a chicken, (laughs) it's a sacrifice. (laughs) The primary word in the Hebrew Bible for sacrifice is korban. Now, if you've read the New Testament, especially like in the King James, you've seen that word before because it's transliterated in the Gospels at least once. The Hebrew word korban is associated with the word relative, relative. The idea of the basis of the word is korban is someone who is close to you, all right? So korban, either by relations or just proximity. The idea is drawing near or being close. Now that makes sense as the basis of the word because the point of a sacrifice is taking man and God who are apart and bringing us close to one another. Korban, that word atonement If you look at it, it's at-one-ment. mint, 2 who are apart, coming together. So the word korban is very appropriate for the word sacrifice. One of the articles I read about sacrifice um, quoted a Jewish uh, paper on it, a book on it. Here's what it said. Uh, This book explains that an individual bringing an animal sacrifice for a sin understands that he personally should have been sacrificed as punishment for the rebellion against God inherent in his sin. But God mercifully accepts the sacrifice in his or her place. Furthermore, it's considered fitting that an animal is used as a sacrifice because at the moment of sin, the individual in question disregarded his elevated human soul effectively acting as an animal. So the idea that The animal dies in my place. That's the concept. That's the point. You commit a sin. The scripture says the wages of sin is death. Death penalty for sin. Remember, God is perfect. He's holy. Sin is evil. It's bad. It's worthy of death. But God loves us. He doesn't want to go around killing us all because we sin all the time. We can't help it. There wouldn't be anybody alive. So how do you meet God's holy standard that death is required and still not kill everybody? So he came up with this system where you could transfer your guilt to an animal and the animal dies for you. But the idea you know is that you're the one causing the blood to be shed. It's your fault and it it should be you. But thanks be to God's mercy, something else dies. And here's the thing. It's not like the animal could take away our sin. It can't. It's just an animal. It's a symbol. It's a picture. It's a lesson. And here's the lesson. I'm a sinner. I'm worthy of death but God has allowed something to die in my place. That's the lesson. And you can probably tell where I'm going with this. <laughs> Leviticus chapter 4, verses 27 through 29. If a member of the community sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, he is guilty. When he, stand, when he is made aware of the sin he committed, he must bring as his offering for the sin he committed a female goat without defect. He is to lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and slaughter it at the place of the burnt offering. Now, sacrifice, slaughter, blood, ooh, gross. Yes, it is, but not barbaric. The only person who can even halfway say it's barbaric are vegetarians. So if you eat meat, you're killing animals all the time. That's how you eat them. You say, well, Steve, I don't kill them myself. I don't care. You're just clean. You don't like to get your hands dirty, but somebody's killing them. This was killing animals. They were very careful that the animal didn't suffer. In fact, there's a tradition that, as far as we know, goes back to those days, that the only way to kill an animal was with a razor-sharp blade and slitting its jugular. And if the animal suffers at all, they can't use it. Today, Jewish people who keep kosher follow these rules. Any animal they eat has to die without suffering. So much so that if the guy's razor-sharp knife has a nick in it, that animal's considered unkosher. So their way of slaughtering animals was actually kind compared to our slaughterhouses today. Their animals, by the way, for the most part, most of the animals that were sacrificed were also eaten. So it was kind of like a fellowship meal with God, a barbecue, a holy barbecue. So even though sacrifice sounds gross, it is. It's the shedding of blood for your sin. It's not much different than what we do today. We only consume the meat without a lesson. They consume the meat with a lesson. We consume the meat not caring how the animal was treated. Vegetarians and vegans care. That's one of the reasons they're vegetarians and vegans. We don't care. They cared. So as barbaric as it sounds, you know, I, I think they're, they're a step up from what we are today. Well, I want to further help you understand the sacrificial system with four letters. If you can learn these four letters, you will completely understand the Old Testament sacrificial system. The first letter is the letter S. The letter S stands for substitution. The animal, as I already pointed out to you, takes your place. It's your substitute. So the letter S stands for substitution. One thing could be sacrificed in your place. I use the word substitution. Heck, you could use the word sacrifice for your letter S if you want to, but I use substitution. The second letter is identification. Notice it said, you are to lay his, he is to lay his hand on the head of the sin offering. And then Leviticus 16.21 says, he is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the desert In the care of a man appointed to the task. Identification. When the offerer brought the sacrifice to the priest, he put his hand. In this case, the one I just read was the priest himself on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Put his hands on the animal, and then he confessed the sins. So as if this transfer was going, Our sins are now on you. They're now your sins. I identify with the animal, the Id- animal identifies with me, we trade places in a sense. So the I would stand for identification. And then the animal has to die. And that's the next letter, D. D stands for death. Now, with the, uh, on Yom Kippur, they had some animals that died and some that were excommunicated. So what, what, what do we know? We know that sin sends you far away from God and kills you. That's what we know about sin. So having the basis of the Old Testament sacrificial system in the minds of the people helps us read forward into the New Testament. The final letter is the letter E, and it is exchange. After the substitution has been brought, the identification has been made, and the uh, animal has died, there's an exchange that takes place an exchange of righteousness. You get the animal's innocence credited to you. The animal gets its guilt credited to it, and it dies or goes away. You're fine. It's not. I give you the word side, S-I-D-E, because it's easy to remember. Substitution, identification, death, exchange. But it also reminds me of the word korban. Remember, two who are close, farther apart, come close together, side by side. And the only way this can happen is through sacrifice. Now, before we jump into the New Testament, I want to tell you a little bit more about sacrifice. If you've been reading through Leviticus, and I know you have, you're seeing there's all sorts of different types of uh, sacrifices for different reasons. Some are called guilt offerings. Some are fellowship or peace offerings. Some are burnt offerings. Like, what is the deal with all these offerings? I don't know. It's very confusing. They obviously understood But each time I read about it, there's obvious some information that's missing. It doesn't explain it all for us, you know, 4,000 years later or, you know, 3,500 years later. But I went to a Jewish educational website to see their take on the various sacrifices. And, And their take was intelligent. It made good sense. Whether it's spot on or not, I couldn't say. But I want to share with you their take on it. The first one, and I've got seven sacrifices to share with you. The first one is the olah or the burnt offering. Olah means to go up. Probably refers to the incense. I mean the smoke of the sacrifice that ascends up to heaven. And it's called the burnt offering in most of your Bibles. They say the burnt offering was about wanting to commune with God. It was like a fellowship offering. It's a way of trying to make peace with God, sort of. But mostly communing with God. And it was submission to God's will. When you offered the burnt offering, because this is the only sacrifice where the whole thing was burnt up. You didn't eat any of this. All the other sacrifices you ate some of, but this one, no, all went to God. And so in their mind, this is complete submission to God. Your entire sacrifice is God's, as if your entire life should be God's. So that's the burnt offering. The next one is the peace offering, also known as the free will offering, the thanksgiving offering, and also the vow offering. Since it's also called the Thanksgiving offering, I prefer that one because it's, you know, you go to the temple, you offer the sacrifice, and you tell God thanks. Thanks for blessing you, thanks for delivering you, thanks for providing for you, and so on and so forth. And, of course, this one is eaten as a fellowship meal. So you go to the temple, you bring your family, you offer, the priests get some, you and your family get the rest. It's a nice holy barbecue. The third one is the sin offering. The sin offering as I read to you a moment ago, was for unintentional sins. And there's a couple lessons to be learned in that. We can sin and not even know it. We do sin and don't even know it. But God knows it, and he still holds us accountable for it. Sin is sin. It's sort of like, gee, officer, I didn't know the speed limit here was, was 35. I thought it was 50. He doesn't care that you didn't know. You still broke the law. Same Same concept. So that's uh, the sin offering for unintentional sins. The next one is the asham or the guilt offering. This one is for breach of trust. If you have broken somebody's trust, I don't mean you just hurt their feelings, but maybe they entrusted something to you and you lost it or stole it or whatever. That's what this one's for. And this one's also, according to Jewish tradition, since God holds us accountable for sin, you know, when I was over at Cousin Louie's house, I did X and X. And I'm not sure if that, I should have done that or not. That might be wrong. Was it a sin? Was it not a sin? Did I do I'm not sure. I better go to the temple just in case. So this is a cover your assets offering, a CYA. Because you're not really sure, but you want to make sure you're okay with God just in case. And though the idea is kind of silly in one respect, and the other respect is kind of brilliant. Because the idea is, don't risk it with God. God is serious. God is holy. God is righteous. It's not worth making a mistake, just in case I'm going to do this. Next one is a food offering. And this brings me to the story of Cain and Abel, which I think everybody's got wrong. Because here's what happens. Cain comes to the Lord, and he offers fruits of the field, crops, veggies, Abel comes, and he offers an animal, a lamb. And Cain is rejected, and Abel is not. And everybody goes, aha, that's because Abel offered the right kind of sacrifice, blood sacrifice, that's what God wants. Cain offered the wrong kind, and that's why his wasn't accepted. I don't believe that's true. Obviously, food offerings are acceptable to God. It's part of the Levitical system. There's nothing wrong with a food offering. And if you read what the New Testament says about Cain and Abel, it says that Abel's sacrifice was accepted because it was offered in faith. It doesn't say that about Cables. Cables. <laughs> Cain's. It wasn't offered in faith. It had nothing to do with the sacrifice. It had to do with the attitude in which the sacrifice was presented. Cain didn't have the right heart before it. Abel did. That's why his was accepted and the other wasn't. There were even offerings of undiluted wine. Hey, if you're a teetotaler and think the Bible is the same, I don't know what to tell you. They made wine, and they drank wine, and they offered some to God, and it was all good. The seventh one I want to share with you is the red heifer. This is the most mysterious of them all. In fact, one place I consulted said that the red heifer sacrifice is so mysterious, so mystical, that it's beyond human comprehension. Which is a real intelligent way of saying, we don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But it's interesting. Let me read to you a quote from the website. It purifies the impure, but it also renders the pure impure. See, the ashes of the red heifer were used to make something that was impure, pure. Okay, So if something was defiled or unholy or you wanted to make it holy, you used the ashes of red heifer and that ceremony cleansed the impure item. But the priests and the Levites who were active in sacrificing the red heifer and carrying its parts where it needed to go, they were all made impure. So in the process of making the red heifer sacrifice, They became impure. Now, how is that? How can you become impure while you're doing something that makes... It's like saying, oh, you don't want to make soap. It'll make you all dirty. Well, actually, making soap is a dirty process, if you think about it. It takes animal lard or plant lard, and you boil it, and it could be a little messy. But this is kind of cool because, in order for the red heifer to do its thing, it has to die. Death, the shedding of blood, not a good thing. Death is not a good thing. And I I guess I don't have to prove that to you. Nobody likes it. God doesn't like it either. It's a necessary thing, but it's not a good thing. In fact, it says in the Bible the last enemy that God will defeat is death, he will destroy death. He's going to kill it, he's going to kill it dead. I can't wait for those days. But in the meantime, he will use it to help people get atonement. So it purifies the impure. Another thing about the red heifer sacrifice, really cool. According to Jewish tradition, the Messiah is going to do the red heifer sacrifice when he comes back. Remember, they don't believe in Jesus. The Messiah hasn't come yet. And for the last couple thousand years, there have been no red heifers. I don't mean you've been to Texas and you saw one that looked pretty red. That's not what I mean. I mean, they have a certain set of standards that this heifer has to meet to be considered kosher, to be used in the temple as a sacrifice, and they haven't had one for 2,000 years since the temple was destroyed. But guess what they stumbled upon just a few years ago? A kosher red heifer. And you know what that meant to them? Whoa! It's a harbinger of the Messiah, We've got a red heifer now. That means the temple can be rebuilt. We can do the red heifer ceremony and the Messiah can come. Pretty cool. Did you know just a few years ago the Sanhedrin also reconvened? Yeah. And did you know there's a place in Israel right now where they are making the articles for the temple? Oh, yeah. They're even prefabbing part of the place so that when the time comes, They can get on it and get her done. They're just waiting in the wings for the right moment. This is cool, not because we need the temple or want the temple, but because prophetically speaking, it says the temple will be rebuilt. And to see these people who don't believe in our prophecies doing this, it's just pretty exciting. So, I think I've made the point. Sacrifice was extremely important. It was instituted by God mandated by God, made fellowship with God possible, and most importantly, it pictured the coming redemption of the Messiah. See, I told you before it was a symbol. Animals could never take away sin. New Testament says it is not possible that the blood blood of bulls and goats can take away sin. And in that context, it says, Jesus says, but I have come to do your will, O God, a body you have prepared me. You didn't want sacrifice or burnt offering, but here I am to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. The first was a picture. It was a symbol. It was a type. Jesus is the fulfillment. He's the antitype. A goat cannot take away your sins. What makes a goat holy or better than you? So powerful that it can cleanse you from your sin. It can't. You need something not only equal to you, but superior to you to take away your sin. And not just superior to you, but superior to sin. So that's something that's totally sinless. And not just something that's sinless, but something that can vanquish sin. Defeat it. Kill it. You can't do that. A goat can't do that. I can't die for you because I'm sinful too. I can't even take care of my own sin. Jesus, as the Son of God, the sinless Son of God, died for everybody's sins, from Adam till the coming of Jesus. He is so powerful, so holy, so pure that he can deal with everybody's sin. Only the Son of God can do that. That's why he came. He came as a sacrifice for our sins. He said, I did not come for people to serve me. I came to serve people and to lay my life down as a sacrifice for many. A korban. Because we are distant from God. And Jesus was the only one who could fix it. But he set in motion centuries before the education so that we would understand the significance of the gospel when it came. So I think people who haven't read the Old Testament and aren't aware of the richness of the lesson are like stepping into the movie halfway through, like right after intermission, missing part of the story, part of the richness of what's going on. So with all that in mind, Jesus said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. But he wants sacrifice. So what's he talking about? Well, that's why it's a riddle. He wanted people to work it out. Remember I told you about Cain and Abel? It wasn't Cain's offering that was the problem. It was the attitude of the offering that's the problem. If anybody brings anything to God, a dozen bloody bowls or a corn on the cob, If the attitude's not right, God doesn't want it. Listen, Jesus said the same thing. You have heard that it was told those who lived long ago, you must not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to punishment. But I say to you, anyone who is angry with his brother without a cause will be subject to punishment. And whoever says to his brother, raka, it's kind of like idiot, will be subject to the council, and whoever says you fool will be subject to hellfire. So, if you're presenting your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. He doesn't say, I don't want your gift. He says, you've got to come with the right attitude. You're you're mean to your brother and you had this big old fight now you're going to come worship God. I don't think so. Go make it right with your brother first. Don't be wallowing in evil and in sin and in stupidity and then come talk to God like it's all right. I was listening to the other day. It might have been Alistair Begg. I'm not sure. I, I listen to him. I like him. Something like this. Ah, no, I know who it was. It was Scott Richards, Calvary Christian Fellowship. I like him too. Listening to him teach the other day, he was talking about how hard it is to be an usher in a church. He said, because sometimes at the church, and he was an usher before he was a pastor, he said, people will really get into the worship to such a point where they become distracting to other people. They'll start freaking out, you know, to use my unkind words. Because that's the perspective that the usher has to deal with. They, they'll go up and they'll tap somebody on the shoulder and tell them, hey, you know, I hate to interrupt your worship, but you're kind of being a distraction. And the idea in the churches, if one person's worship is distracting other people, now they're just becoming a problem to everybody else. And they have to, you know, just calm down a little and worship God in a decent and order fashion, not bring attention to themselves. It's not about themselves. It's about God. And he said there are times when this would happen, where they'd go up and tap on somebody, and the person would get all mad at them. And he's like, really? You were just enraptured with God? You're like this with God? And now I come to you with the pastor's instructions and you're going to bite my head off? He says, I see a little discontinuity here. Maybe it wasn't worship you were doing. Maybe it was flesh. Maybe it was all you. Yeah, you know, you might be making a good point. Because how can you be enraptured and holy with God one second and the next second turn around and bite somebody's head off? A representative of the church, no less. It's about the attitude. Come in here, we yelled at our wife, we beat our kids, we lied at work, and then we come in here and lift up our hands and praise God. You think God wants that worship? It's dirty. It's not right. Got to get the attitude right first. So if you're presenting your gift at the altar, remember there that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift. Go make it right with your brother. Then come. So the idea is, The heart has to be right first, then the offering is valuable. Those Pharisees that he was trying to teach, they were upset because he was fellowshipping with sinners. They didn't have a heart of mercy. I desire mercy. They didn't have a heart of mercy. Jesus said the sick are the ones who need the doctor, not the well. I didn't come to call righteous to repentance. I've come for sinners. How do you expect me to minister to sinners if I can't minister to sinners? Their perspective was all wonk. It was all messed up. And he was trying to set them straight. Well, I'm done, except for one more sacrifice. Are sacrifices still required today? Yes and no. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. He died once for our sins forever. We confess our sins. He takes them all away. We're good. But there is one more sacrifice you can offer to God. Romans 12 says, So then, my friends, because of God's great mercy to us, I appeal to you. This is the Apostle Paul. I appeal to you. Offer yourselves as a living sacrifice to God, dedicated to his service and pleasing to him. This is the true worship that you should offer. Don't conform yourselves to the standards of this world, but let God transform you inwardly. Renew your mind. By a complete change of your mind, Then you'll be able to know the will of God, what is good and pleasing to him and perfect. Substitution, identification, death, and exchange. Jesus died for your sins, but it won't do you any good unless you've identified with him, unless you've confessed your sins and recognized the exchange. So if you've not yet given your heart to Jesus Christ, I would very much encourage you to do so. Short little prayer, just let him know you, not not only do you believe in him, but you pledge to follow him with 100% of your life as a living sacrifice. Not 50%, not 75%. Tell him you apologize for your sin and do the best you can to follow him for the rest of your days. And this would be pleasing to God. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, help us all here to be living sacrifices, pleasing to you, holy. You know, sometimes our spirits are willing, but our flesh is weak. And so I pray that you as the potter would take us as the clay and mold us into vessels fit for your service. Help us to be everything you want us to be. For it's in Jesus's holy and precious name we pray. Amen.